Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader back here with one of these remotely recorded Truth and Movies specials. Last week, we had our special looking at the work of David Fincher in anticipation of his new film, Mank. This week, we're going to be talking about Mank itself. But first, let me introduce my guests this week. I have David Jenkins, head honcho of Little White Lies. David, it's such a pleasure to hear from you. It's lovely to be here. And we have a newcomer. We have Lillian Crawford. Welcome, Lillian. Hello. So, Lillian, I've read your work in the magazine, but could you please let our listeners know who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I recently graduated from a master's in film um, and I've been trying to do some freelancing since then, but with lockdown, it's been quite difficult to um, to do much. So I'm very excited to be here to talk about Mank. And we have so much to talk about. But first of all, let's talk about the new issue of Little White Lies, the Mank special. Of course, Lillian, you have a piece in there as well. But David, could you introduce us to the Mank issue and let us know what treats await us in, within the pages? Yeah, this was a fun issue. It kind of all hinged around uh, an interview we got with David Fincher himself talking about the film. I think that one of the things that we wanted to focus on in this issue was the idea of kind of film culture and um, how we how we choose films, how we talk about the films we love and the kind of almost tapping into this idea that comes through in the film, uh, in, in Mank, of like the mythology of Hollywood and, and how, how we have kind of, as a society, evolved that and, uh, and, and expanded on it. Um, so we have like an interview with Fincher. We also have an interview with Tuppence Middleton, who plays Manx's wife in the film. She's like a great British actor who's done loads and loads of interesting stuff, and she's really great in this in this film. We have a feature on boutique Blu-ray labels and how they're kind of preserving the gems of the past in in a kind of physical form. Only a nuclear bomb will get rid of them. Not to say that's not en route. And we've we've got we've got lots of other little features around that. And and Lillian actually did a, a massive feature in this issue exploring the notion of the canon, which is this kind of idea of what are the greatest films ever made? Because Mank is you know, Mank is a Mank is kind of the log line of Mank is how did the greatest film ever made come into being? Or one of its many log lines, I guess. And that film is Resident Evil, the final chapter. Indeed. Like. <laughs> <laughs> no, that film is Citizen Kane. So Lillian, I will be asking you later, why is Citizen Kane so great? And why has it developed this reputa- reputation as the best film ever made? So this Mank special is uh, 
a, a supporting piece of audio for your viewing. Maybe it's giving you a cheat sheet for your viewing beforehand, or maybe going a bit deeper into the world and the story, the characters, the history, if you've just watched it and want to go a bit deeper. So let's tee things up with a synopsis and a clip. 1930s Hollywood is re-evaluated through the eyes of scathing wit and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish Citizen Kane. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankowitz. New York playwright and drama critic. Turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Do come in. At this rate, you will never finish. You said 90 days. Well, said 60. I'm doing the best I can. I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. You owe me, Herman. Who do you think you are? You're nothing but a court jester. What I want to know is why you think of it. It's a bit of a jumble, a collection of fragments that leap around in time like Mexican jumping beans. Welcome to my mind, old sock. Him, I get. But what did Marion ever do to deserve it's this? It's not her. Not all characters are headliners. Some are secondary. You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mayor can't save you. Nobody can, especially the boy genius from New York. I removed any distraction, eliminated every excuse. Your family, your cronies, liquor. I gave you a second chance. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. Why Hurst? Outside his own blonde Betty Boop, you're always his favorite dinner partner. Are you familiar with the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? <laughs> so we've got all sorts of directions we can go in here, but let's start not with Orson Welles and Citizen Kane and Herbert and J. Mankowitz. Let's start with the director of Mank, David Fincher. So David... Jenkins, you interviewed David Fincher for the mag. Let's talk about how this project came to him and how he came to the project. Yeah, on paper it does seem a little bit of an anomaly for for Fincher, just him dealing with a film about filmmaking. Uh, even though I think that a lot of his films in the past have dealt with it in a very kind of metaphorical way. This is his first kind of literal film about the world of film. And it came to him via his own father, so um, the story goes that his father was a travel journalist and wrote various books throughout his life, worked for Life magazine, and he wrote books on things like how the brain works and about the phenomenon of people being left-handed. And during his life, he apparently wrote many screenplays just, just in his leisure time. And Mank was something that came out in his retirement when David 
had said to him, well, he was looking for a challenge and they both had been interested in uh, the Citizen Kane book by Pauline Kael and her essay, Raising Kane. And he sort of said, well, why don't you explore something around that? It's quite an interesting subject. So he wrote this screenplay and David Fincher went off and made Alien 3. And once he returned, he read the screenplay and there was, um, I think there was a bit of discrepancy about what Fincher Sr.'s depiction of filmmaking and the world of film was compared to Fincher Jr.'s vision of it, considering he'd just been very much involved in it and the experience was not a positive one. And they worked on it a bit further. They expanded it out. It started by being about Mankiewicz and being about his journey and how he came to uh, write this screenplay, which called American, which was later renamed Citizen Kane. Uh, it was a huge 300-pager, um, sorry, was it 200 or 300 pages? I can't remember. It was very long. It was, you know, it was it was too long for a normal film. It would, This would have been a kind of four-hour epic if it had been filmed. And so they added some extra stuff about political intrigue of the era as well and, and Mankiewicz kind of skirting that world and taking inspiration from it as well and, and also sort of developing a sense of morality I think and they took it around to various studios and the studios were basically having none of it. Fincher at the time had a sort of direct deal with Polygram who were uh, a subsidiary of, of Universal and he just had a fairly sizable hit with Seven uh, and even then when he pitched them a a film about the making of Citizen Kane that was going to be filmed in black and white they were like thanks but no thanks, you know. I think the way he said it was like, it was the easiest no for them <laughs> ever. So, um, um, but yeah, it was a screenplay that he kind of kept in his back pocket and had always harboured a desire to sort of realise. I don't think it's one that he was necessarily constantly pitching. I think he pitched it around the time of the game, which is like 97, and nothing came to fruition. And then he kind of held back and it's been something that he's kind of secretly harboured a, a desire to make. It's interesting because he's had it like his relationship with his father is actually is an interesting part of his own evolution as a filmmaker because he also, one of the reasons why he ended up making The Curious Case of Benjamin Button was because he had sat with his father on his deathbed and was engaging with him and talking about to him about his life and that was a very kind of important emotional moment for him which uh, that he he wanted to kind of capture in that film with the kind of Kate Blanchett in her in her deathbed and regaling her, her life story but yeah and then flash forward to Netflix to uh, Mindhunter to House of Cards and you know Fincher is I guess he got that kind of golden handshake where they were like well what do you want to do next and he was like he made the calculation that this was his time to to break out the old Manx script and the rest as they say is history. It's so fascinating looking at Jack Fincher's IMDb one of those incredibly rare cases of just one credit which is writer <laughs> on Manx which is one of the you know biggest films of the year. Lillian, in our last episode with um, Hannah and Adam, we were talking about our relationships with Fincher. And of course, you can come to this as a fan of film history, come to Mank, or you can come to it as the new David Fincher movie. I'd like to know which is which are you coming to it as, a fan of the film or a fan of Fincher? Yeah, well, it's interesting because this is actually the first Fincher film that I've been old enough to sort of see when it comes mm -hmm. out. Because um, when, when Gone Girl came out, in what 2014 I would have been about 
15 at the time. So this is really sort of the first one that I'm able to appreciate in the moment of its release. I think that I, my favourite part of Fincher's filmography is probably the first hour of the assembly cut of Alien 3, which is this incredible sort of take on Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose and Charles Dance is in it. And it's, and it's really this very fascinating look at a brotherhood of monks and um, what happens when Ripley sort of shows up in, in that situation. And the thing that I found really fascinating about David's um, interview with Fincher was that this sort of came around the same time that he was making that film. And that line about, I'm not where the um, studio said, you're not making an opera. And he said, but I am making an opera. I really feel that there's a lot of that first hour of Alien 3 in Mank, and you can sort of see that influence on it. And I, th I think that sort of relationship and that approach to making this sort of grand epic film is more in line with his earlier work than perhaps some of his later films. That's a really fascinating point, actually. We didn't t talk about Alien 3 on that previous special. But now, of course, Mank is a film where you come out of a viewing with a viewing list as long as your arm and a reading list as long as your other arm. Um, maybe Alien 3 is worth a rewatch. That's Thank you, Lillian. <laughs> I mean, I, I I totally agree. I love the first hour of Alien 3. It, I think the issue is that I just hate the second hour of Alien 3. <laughs> oh, it's dreadful. <laughs> Charles Dance dies and then it all just goes wrong and everyone starts saying the F word rather than um, talking about theology. It's It's very disappointing. <laughs> But David, do you, do you think that um, Fincher could only make a film like this after his previous 10 features? Because it would have been very strange if he'd managed to make it in 1997-98, coming off 7. I'm not sure, really. I think it would have probably been a different film, and Fincher is quite... I mean, he's a very, very candid interviewee, and he's, you know, he, he's very open about his progression as a filmmaker and how that progression is realized in the films themselves and and you know he, he he has said that like he was only really happy and comfortable with what he was doing by the time of like zodiac i think he felt that was his first kind of mature film and i must say that i think manx sits probably feels more comfortable in that mature period rather than when he was the kind of mischievous prankster of the game and fight club and panic room you know um it feels like there is a kind of there is a bit more restraint there even though I mean maybe we can get into this later but I think that Mank does have elements of both of these sides of Fincher in that it has a kind of prestige Benjamin Button element it also has I think provocation uh, and there there are sort of decisions that that it makes that are in it that actually that are kind of red rag to a bull in terms of like certain audience members certain history like cinephiles historians and i think he is kind of there is that that impulse of like i want to i want to sort of shake the chair you're sitting in rather than just give you this kind of passive and quite kind of comfortable viewing experience well we should pick up on that later yeah. i suppose <laughs> but first we have you, know, you mentioned that david fincher was a bit of an enfant filmmaker with Alien 3 out of the gate with his first feature. There is no more um, ambitious first feature than Citizen Kane, the film that Mank is about the making of. So let's tackle Citizen Kane, a film that no one's talked about for many years, right? This great, this great lost masterpiece. 
I suppose, Lillian, this is it, Citizen Kane is very much held up as one of the greatest films of all time, if not the greatest. It has become an easy buzzword in other mediums for an example of that craft that changes the game or is the the, the the highest peak of creativity. So we're looking for the Citizen Kane of video games, the Citizen Kane of music, the Citizen Kane of escape rooms. Um, how did the film develop that reputation, do you think? So it really sort of starts with the second sight and sound poll. Um, when in 1962, I think was the second one. Um, the first one, Bicycle Themes, was uh, in 1952, was the first film to top the poll. Um, Kane's not in the top 10. It's the second one when it starts to gain traction as this sort of progressive, experimental choice, which is kind of interesting looking at now because so many films have been influenced by Kane that it almost doesn't seem that original through modernized, but certainly when it was chosen, it, it would have been. And um, Antonioni's Leventura, which had only come out two years before, is 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 second in, in that ranking. So Kane sort of gets picked up on these polls a lot, right up to um, the American Film Institute when they do their 100 greatest American films. Citizen Kane is, is right at the top there. And it stays at the top of the sight and sound poll until 2012, when it's sort of knocked down into second place by Vertigo. It became such a fixture within the film world. Of course, yeah. what I look to for uh, films that become uh, common parlance is how often they're parodied on The Simpsons. And of course, it, it is Citizen Kane's parodied on The Simpsons to the point where we just, we know yes. Rosebud. We, there are certain scenes or certain shots, certain character moments that we know. But it's one of those films that you then forget how experimental that it is. And I suppose, could we try and revisit it with fresh eyes and just quickly sum up why it's innovative in the first place, what it did differently to the films around it. Well, I, I think that the main thing that Kane does, um, which is so different to other films, is that it comes, it's born out of this contract, um, which RKO um, signs with, with Wells um, after he sort of causes a national crisis with his broadcast of War of the Worlds in 1938. Um, and people genuinely think that aliens are taking over the world and they they think that he's this person who's going to be able to gain a lot of attention. So they sign this deal where he has complete authorial control. And I think that that's the main thing that appeals to people and, and, and particularly the people who have created the canon in the West as sort of idealising um, something made by an author or, or, or an author, a sole author um, of a work as writer, director, producer. Um, and that that's a podium that people idealise and, and think is very much something to be looked up to um, and celebrated. That's what Kane does. It comes out in 1941. It's not shut down by William Randolph Hearst as he wanted it to be. And I think that's perhaps why it's celebrated as this first great American film and remains that way because Wells is sort of venerated as as this great author. It does have that sense of maybe not being an underdog but because it does so William Randolph Hearst being this great publishing magnate and person with immense influence and power over Hollywood who is in some ways satirized in the character of Kane the fact that he stymies its success it is nominated for many oscars but only comes away with one as we find in mank it's for screenplay 
but then because Orson Welles just has this unstoppable personality and charm and charisma that sees him through many years, even though he never really has the freedom or the platform that he does with Kane again. So I suppose it's that intersection where it feels almost like an underdog. Everyone loves to say, oh, the critics hated this film when it first came out, but now we all know better. But it's it's always more yeah. complicated than that, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And and I think that part of the reason why it's Citizen Kane that's sort of celebrated as, as his great masterpiece and, and the great masterpiece is because the films that he makes afterwards are oppressed by the studio or by other people within this sort of Hollywood studio system. So when his the, the RKO contract is supposed to be for two films, um, and when The Magnificent Ambersons comes out in 1942, he doesn't get Final Cut, which was very much sort of the key promise of that contract. Um, so because we can say, well, look what happens when a director doesn't get full control. It's sort of artistically stunted by that loss of control. Then Citizen Kane becomes sort of an example of what, of what a film looks like when they do have that control, which perhaps is part of why um, that style of filmmaking is so celebrated and why Pauline Kael, when she writes Raising Cain, does so much to damage mm. that film's reputation. Regardless of how much scholarship has gone into that essay, she is attacking sort of the greatness of Wells and and the sort of the questioning the fact that mm-hmm. Wells is sole author of that work. And I think with Raising Cain, it's almost Kale it doesn't matter what film it was, it doesn't matter how much evidence there is, what that essay is doing is it's a critique of the idol of the auteur in cinema and emphasising the fact that we need to look at the other people involved because the credits of mm-hmm. Citizen Kane are very short. So if you, if you watch Citizen Kane, you very much get the impression that this is a film by Orson Welles. Um, it sort of reminds me of Mr Bean's Holiday at the end when they're at Cannes and they're watching the Willem Dafoe film. It's like Carson Clay presents a film by Carson Clay, starring Carson Clay as Carson Clay. And it's it's kind of like that, the beginning of Kane Wells' name, very much sort of celebrated. And that's that's where Kale's mm-hmm. um, coming in, mainly because Andrew Saris, a few years before, 1968, publishes this book called The American Cinema, which rounds up the great auteurs of American cinema um, in response to what Francois Truffaut had done in 1954 in Cahiers de Cinema in his essay that really sort of articulates what an auteur is. Um, and Saris applies it to Wells and Hitchcock and, and, and these sort of great Hollywood directors. And Raising Cain is really an attack on, on that idea and that um, veneration of mm-hmm. great male figures um, in cinema. Yeah. So regardless of the attacks that come later on on Raising Cain, the point is is made. And, and I don't think that really that ideal of auteurism really regains the strength that it had prior to, to 1971 and, 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 and that period. But it was, it was clearly important for a certain critical class for a good couple of decades there that this is how we frame this still relatively young medium and then the specific industry of Hollywood to separate the art from the commerce to find our artists. It's clearly important for some of these critics. And that doesn't necessarily reflect on the the filmmakers themselves, as we Mm -hmm. find with 
the responses to Raising Cain. So we should say what Raising Cain is. I mean, now you can buy it in a collection of Pauline Kael's criticisms. She was long-term New Yorker film critic, seen by many as one of the most influential of the middle 20th century. Um, when they come to publish the script of Citizen Kane, they make this coffee table book called the Citizen Kane Book, and she writes the introduction, which turns into its own sort of 50,000-word book-length essay that is then printed across two issues of The New Yorker. And, David, could you sum up a, a bit of what she says in that, in terms of these arguments? Because it is clearly very influential on the argument or the take on Kane and Mankiewicz that Mank the film has. Indeed, yeah. I mean, the book starts off as a fairly kind of more sort of historical, narrative-driven thing that introduces Herman Mankiewicz, uh, his work in Hollywood, his history, his family. Um, he's he's part of what she terms the Algonquin set, which is a kind of um, writer's room in New York of of kind of very kind of witty male writer types who decamped to Hollywood after Mank went out there and, and kind of coaxed all his kind of brethren over there. People like, um, oh, uh, Ben Hecht, Ben Hecht. Yeah. Who, who has it, has a little role in the film. And, and there's a, there's a really brilliant scene in, in Mank where they're kind of, you're given an impression of these smartest guy in the room types as they essentially make up a movie uh, under duress a pretty terrible movie all told but like i think that the idea that you're the, that the film is trying to get across is their kind of their sort of com- level of levels of confidence are kind of off the, off the map and she makes the case for for she, i mean she just tells about Mac mankovitz writing the script how he did it and a, you know a fair few of the details from raising cane are taken lock stock and barrel and find themselves in jack finch's script I think where Mank the film departs from Raising Cain is in its second half, in which she kind of develops her argument into trying to basically ascribe value to each creative involved in the making of Citizen Kane. And I think the sense that you get from reading it is that it takes a lot of liberties with how films are made and the production and how people collaborate and there are lots of like line by line takedowns of of the book that appeared fairly soon after it was published and i i don't think we should necessarily be going into those there but like most of them are available like um peter bogdanovich who is director who is a kind of cohort of wells and has written books on him uh, he did he wrote a piece for esquire which is online that you can read Many say that he ghost wrote it uh, with Wells by his side, um, but obviously that's not confirmed. That refutes some of Kale's claims. Apparently, it was quite a kind of weird situation because, on one hand, you had this book out there that was denigrating Wells's genius. On the other hand, Wells was getting quite a tidy profit from it because it was because <laughs> it included the script in there. So he had it, the impulse for him was it probably wasn't very financially savvy for him to sue and because he was actually like this was um keeping him in uh Chianti and, and hog roasts and stuff so um but I think there are people who really really hate Raising Kane. a lot of um Wells fans I kind of find despite its faults it's a it's a fascinating 
document and I think like the idea that it should be kind of excised from Kale's and kind of personal canon literary canon is not a good idea because I think it's an interesting case study of how we look at films the role of the critic how we kind of pick apart the processes of filmmaking and how they differ from reality I mean a lot of the work of the critic is second guessing how Mm -hmm. a film is made so you know there, there is there isn't a science to it and I think that one of the things that people resent about Raising Cain is that she writes it in a way that makes you think it is kind of scientific. So, But yeah, it's, it is fascinating how much of Raising Cain does appear in Mank. And I think that, that that kind of loops back to what I was saying about this kind of mischievous side of Fincher. I think knowing that having it placed so prominently in the script, that's going to kind of raise hackles with certain people who are sort of have very fervent beliefs on a sort of different end of a scale so it's it, it's interesting and raising cain at least comes from a noble place of trying to be a corrective against that sort of theory of wells the sole genius created this film out of his pure imagination and focuses on greg tolland the cinematographer you know, bernard herman the composer who all have great creative um, impact on the film um, and these are often people who have credits. You know, nowadays, we know who composes the music for films. We, you know, John Williams is bigger than Star Wars in some ways. Uh, we know who editors are. We know who cinematographers are. We know who writers are. But maybe in the 30s and 40s, even if they were, you know, even if, it's, if it is the Algonquin set coming over with their bylines from New York publications, they'd often be doing stuff uncredited. And that's sort of why Citizen Kane is almost the only major work that Herman J. Mankiewicz has a credit for. A lot of his work is uncredited. The piece that does pop up in Mank is... Um, actually, does it pop up in Mank? The example that is often quoted is that he just had... He was he was in almost a writer's room for The Wizard of Oz and came up with the idea that, oh, why don't you do all of the stuff in Kansas beforehand in black and white and then when, he, when Dorothy goes to Oz, it can all be in colour. And then there you go. That is one of the most innovative bits of cinematography and filmmaking of the 20th century. And the writer came up with it almost as a half kind of sidebar notion in a meeting. And that is almost unquantifiable and uncredited. I like that in the magazine... Adam Woodward has a piece where he digs into the uncredited uh, people on on Kane, you know, from costume designers to uh, second unit directors. These are all the people that have immense um, influence on what we see on the screen. So that's sort of all feeding into Mank, right? And it does become this debate about how much of the script of Citizen Kane was written by Mankiewicz, how much of it was Orson Welles feeding it through his typewriter and punching it up, taking bits out, putting bits in. And it has this personal story woven through it where it's um, Mankiewicz's own experiences with Randolph Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, that he fed into the script. Of course, we should say that William Randolph Hearst isn't, wasn't the only influence on Citizen Kane in terms of real-life figures he might have been modelled on. There are lots of other um, people in the mix there. That's what makes Mank so fascinating and actually puts it more in line with the social network out of Fincher's work because you don't go into the social network and expect it to be almost like a documentary about the founding of Facebook, almost from the first frame where you know that Rooney Mara's character is made up. There is no girlfriend that is the seed of the creation of Facebook. But some of those debates and questions and ambiguity go into the big story of cinema that we all buy into and want to talk over and over again about. 
Yeah. And the screenplay for Mank is a lot more muted than what Kale's writing. But the essence is very much there that Fincher isn't someone who would want to be described as an author. He always stresses his collaborators. You mentioned Trent Reznor and Ascus Ross and um, Eric Messerschmidt, who does the cinematography on this film as well. He's always very keen to stress their role. And, and of course, his father writing the screenplay, because this is sort of, you know, his chance to really be applauded for for what he was able to do, what he was able to write. Um, Fincher has said that he toned down the script that his father wrote because it was almost too anti-Wells in its approach. I very much get the impression with Mank, which I think is 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 a good impression, is that Fincher doesn't care who wrote Citizen Kane. He's sort of caused an uproar by saying things about Wells that he was sort of this this um, showman and, and when he was saying about cinematography that you can learn cinematography in an afternoon well of course you would if you had Greg mm-hmm. Toland standing next to you directing the cameras so yeah I, I don't think Fincher really cares who wrote it what matters is is that it wasn't just Wells and I, I would say that with Manx's depiction of Herman Mankovich's involvement it's probably um, exaggerated. Wells almost certainly had more involvement. I don't think he would have had any less than than the film is showing. Um, but if he did, maybe it came later because it sort of it stops with we don't see the production of Citizen Kane itself, which which is very much something that I'm I'm glad about because I was sort of worried that it was going to be a sort of linear A to B, let's make a movie with lots of name drops and sort of um, winks to cinephiles and things, which um, which I very much think is what um, the earlier um, t- HBO film, RKA 281 by Benjamin Ross is, is doing, is that it's, it is more this sort of linear, let's start in 1938 or whenever, and then go up through um, the production. This, this, this film, is is more mirroring the playing with flashbacks, which which is very innovative for Kane at, at the time. Um, it's it seems strange to make a film about the making of Citizen Kane and tell it in the sort of classic Hollywood style of narrative when Citizen Kane itself sort of, it, it, even if the film isn't that great, the screenplay itself is so brilliant and pioneering because it's all over the place and yet it all makes sense, um, and that's what really influences films that come that come later is that you don't have to tell a story with a beginning, middle and end in that order. I yeah. agree. I agree with what you're saying about this, uh, this idea of like, we should hold back on kind of trying to say for certain what Fincher is aiming to do with this film. And I, and I absolutely agree in the same way that social network isn't about Facebook, the same way that Zodiac isn't about the Zodiac killer. Mindhunter isn't about Ed Kempner. This isn't about, this, I mean, you know, I think this is it's set in that world of old Hollywood and it's focused on Herman Mankiewicz. I don't necessarily think it's about him. I think that, like, one of the things that makes Fincher interesting as a filmmaker and ironically, I mean, kind of, you, you get this, you almost sort of develop this paradoxical idea of, like, you know, Fincher himself does have all these incredible collaborators and he talks a lot about um, the people he works with and yet he is the one who we believe leaves the mark on his movies he you know his he, he is the one that that creates this kind of connective tissue between between the works and makes them unique and makes them worthwhile and makes them interesting 
And I think that one of the, one of the things is that he just does, he, he, he has this kind of this eye or an ear for material that is actually kind of speaking beyond its, its kind of literal interpretation. So, you know, like I find Mank far more interesting and moving as a film about kind of the nature of inspiration and like the the kind of development of morals the 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 kind of interaction with your landscape and with events and how and and how they can kind of play into to to to, to creativity i i i think it's re- like one of the most interesting aspects of mank for me is the is this subplot involving marion davis played by um amanda Seyfried, who is um a, a kind of young actress in kind of used to sort of more kind of poppy roles uh she is a she she is um partner of Hearst William Randolph Hearst and she is kind of depicted in Citizen Kane quite negatively the 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 way her kind of character has been extrapolated is as a kind of showgirl singer who is put in an opera to show her worth as an artist and it kind of crashes this like this whole idea crashes and burns which which is kind of like you know that's just one tiny subplot of Citizen Kane that could be an entire movie. So, but I love this subplot with them. I love how there's there's a, there's a great scene in the middle of the film where Gary Oldman's Mankiewicz and and Seyfried's Marion Davis go for a walk around the the kind of menagerie at San Simeon, which is the the big kind of castle that Xanadu is based on, and you get this idea. It's about like the morality of art, the like the idea of like you know, when we're interacting with people on a private, personal level, how much of that is open season? How much of that can we take and make into make into something that we're giving to other people? You know, do we have the right to take the lives of other people and change them and manipulate them and present them as our own? And um, I find that element of Mank, like, really interesting and impressive. Like, uh, beyond... I mean, I, I you know, that's not to say that I don't find... The, the the kind of historical context interesting as well but i think that what makes it a great fincher movie rather than just a great movie is that it has this kind of duality of meaning you know it has it has there's, there's more going on than, than meets the eye yeah and i think i think with marion um there's that wonderful scene later on as well once she's read the script and she's sort of she's read what we're supposed to believe is that susan alexander Kane is is based on Marion Davis, um, and she doesn't seem that angry about it. And I th- I, th- I think what Wells does with the film is that she becomes this sort of shrill, hysterical, almost um, laughable character um, who who Kane sort of exploits to prove that he can do anything and make a star out of anyone that he invests time and and, and money into. But Marion's not angry with the way that. Herman Mankiewicz has portrayed her in the script so it, it one wonders the extent to which there's a sort of difference between how she's written and the way that she actually comes to life in the film um of course it's 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 unlikely that Susan Alexander's actually based on Marion Davis because she's she's an opera singer in the film and um that seems to be more Howard Fowler McCormick's wife, uh, second wife um Ganovalska who who was an opera singer and, and was promoted by by her husband and McCormick's the similar sort of figure to Hearst, so it's 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 sort of becomes this um I mean the 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 film that perhaps takes 
the biggest inspiration from it is Florence Foster Jenkins, um, the Stephen Frears fi film, and the way that society elites can sort of be paid off to <laughs> appreciate um, bad art. Yeah, I absolutely love watching a film like this and then going away and reading deeply about the facts behind it all. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. When I rewatched The Social Network a couple weeks ago, I had my phone open, just double-checking every date, every character and all that. And there are things you can talk about here, like the fact that Marion Davis was actually older than Mangoitz, uh, even though it's Amanda Seyfried is a good 20-odd years younger than Gary Oldman and always looks that like that um but for me it's almost the it's not necessarily the kane specific stuff that resonates with me about this film it's having mankovitz set up as this guy who's always the smartest guy in the room but often the least canny and he thinks he has a handle on an industry that he's above but it slips away and you see that over the course of these flashbacks where he thinks that he he's always in he's above it all but he's not and actually there's something very insidious going on and this is the political aspect that's being that's, that's brought in which i think was brought in during the drafting process as uh david asked jack fincher to move it a little bit away from the who wrote what um aspect of uh, of mank and then it's the stirring of a social conscience within somebody who's always played the court jester um which that is quite resonant and relevant even even whether it is anything to do with what really happened in those rooms in that time. And that's what resonates about the social network for me, where the image of Mark Zuckerberg, whoever it is, Jesse Eisenberg character, pressing F5 on on a social media screen is exactly what we're doing now. And you can track that moment in 2010 in that film all the way to 2020 but now 2020 it's the president of the united states pressing f5 on a social media screen <laughs> so that's what i love about that tract of fincher films is he uses historical moments to tell these to create these cinematic moments that spill out in all directions a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I think that if you... If, you know, if you if you are kind of a stickler for 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 history and um, you're 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 wanting to kind of parlay it into film in a way that is that that satisfies researchers, historians, and stuff like that. You know, I, I think there's a dispute whether you're 
making film or not you know it's like or maybe like you'd want to sort of question your motives you know what wh- why do that you know <laughs> i guess obviously history is is for many like sacred and i think the importance of cinema as a mass medium can make people feel that like if documented history is being maligned in every, any in any way then that's obviously a bad thing but at the same time cinema is a, is an entertainment medium and this is probably like material for an entire other podcast but you know i think that that mank re- mank itself really taps into this idea of like i mean it's it's about the idea of how we kind of gin up reality to to make it interesting you know um and that's what that's what movies are i guess so and you know the fact that it is it itself is doing that is it, it's kind of like you know getting high off its own supply <laughs> Yeah. I don't think it would be able to do that if this film was called Wells and it was about Orson's production of this. Most people will not have heard of Herman J. Mankovich before they see this film. Um, so he can be whoever Fincher and Gary Oldman want him to be. Um, he he can take on a personality as not Gary Oldman doing an impression of Winston Churchill like he, he did in The Darkest Hour. This is, this is Gary Oldman being a character um, and that character can be whoever he wants him to be. Um, I think it's important that unlike uh, films like Me and Orson Welles um, by Richard Linklater or um, RKA 281, where Lee Schreiber's sort of doing his best Wells impression, Wells is very much a sort of phone-in cameo appearance in Mank, um, with Tom Burke being brilliant as, as, as he always is. Um, but there's really only one scene which where, where he sort of really comes into the into the spotlight in in the film um which 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 funnily enough gives mank an idea for <laughs> what i think is the worst scene in citizen kane where at the end when orson sort of pulls down all of the things in his room and it, he really sort of lays into this anger which is almost um which which always reminds me of um, the final scene of the room when Tommy Wiseau is sort of throwing everything around. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's it's interesting to see that in Mank and that that unrestrained passion and anger is coming from Wells, whereas all of the sort of the nuance is coming from from Mank. And maybe that's maybe the film, maybe the reason why Citizen Kane is is praised is because it has that those two sides that it has Mank's interpretation and Wells's side to it as well and it comes together to sort of have and that creates a lot of the very enigmatic emotions that we see. I, I do like Tom Burke as well so it's very rare we get to see young bearded Orson Wells in these sorts of films it's always a much more iconic middle-aged Wells. Let's put some scores on this this is a technically a review episode Hannah Woodhead reviewed it for the magazine but David what scores would you give this? That's it. it's, it's been a while in anticipation, enjoyment in retrospect. Wow, yes. Um, I I probably would give it... Um, I'd probably give it f- five, five... I, 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 you see, I want to give it full marks, but I, I would say there is one element of the film that I that I don't really like, um, and it's, it's a very small element, and I think if I'm giving it five, 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 I'm saying this is like the whole package but i think that there is a little kind of coda at the end of the film which i think is quite unnecessary and it maybe sort of like undoes some of the work that i think it's doing prior to that and it's a bit more of a conventional 
element. Um, but it's probably, yeah, I, I, to be honest, I think there's so much good, interesting stuff in there. I mean, like every, I've seen it twice and like on the second viewing, you really just get a sense of how every scene is just doing a lot of lifting without ever feeling like it is. So yeah, I, I'll probably give it fives. Lillian? Well, I, I, I'm not that big a Fincher fan. So, and I was really worried that this was just going to be a sort of story of Citizen Kane. So really, I my anticipation was probably a two or a three. Um, it was very low, um, which is why I would then give it quite high scores for enjoyment. Um, I'd probably give it a five for enjoyment and and a five in retrospect. I do. I, I, I think it's because it's doing so much more than just telling the story of Citizen Kane um, that I got so much out of it. Um, also, it has three amazing performances from um, Tuppence Middleton, Lily Collins and Amanda Seyfried, who are all amazing in this film. And I very much think that Finch has got a really good performance out of Lily Collins, who I haven't seen um, do, do maybe um, as good work before. Um, also, also the, the score is, is wonderful, um, which I would definitely want to shout out as well. Oh my god, the score. Very quick sidebar on that. I'm a huge Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross fan and Nine Inch Nails fan. And this is the one where after a couple of those synthesizer-based scores, mainly for Fincher, but also The American War and um, Bird Box, where you could see a definite link between the sort of ambient industrial music that they were doing for Nine Inch Nails. This is big band jazz, period-appropriate classical. (laughs) They're really stretching themselves. So really good work. I suppose my scores, I'm a big Fincher fan, and that my scores would be five, three, four, with a caveat that I'm the sort of person when watching this, I'm always there like asterisk, like a citation needed, <laughs> etc. But luckily mm-hmm. it's going to be released in a form where I can go back and rewatch it and have that second viewing experience like you did, David. So, And always it's a pleasure to talk through a film like this, go and do some reading, go and do some extra viewing, rewatch Citizen Kane. Um, it really does enrich a film like this. And with that in mind, do we have any recommendations for listeners, maybe films, pieces of writing, I mean, podcast I'd recommend is go and listen to You Must Remember This, which does have a whole mini-series about this era of Hollywood, particularly all of some of the sidebar characters we see, studio bosses and heads. If you want to learn more about Irving Thalberg, for example, You Must Remember This is a good place for that. One book that I would recommend that I read, I haven't read it recently, but but I read it a while ago and, and, and absolutely loved it, is called, it's, a, it's a film, uh, a kind of film history book called City of Nets by a guy called Otto Friedrich and it's kind of like a a sort of bit of a kind of backroom counter history of 40s Hollywood um there's there's a bit of fair bit of material on Mankiewicz in there um and other kind of players of the era it was a big it's actually been a massive influence on um Coen Brothers and um and particularly for for um for, for Barton Fink which is another film about a kind of um, leftist uh, Hollywood screenwriter who is kind of chewed up by the system. I think there's lots of overlap between Mank and Barton Fink. Um, but yeah, I would I, I would probably recommend those. Uh, if you want something that's a bit more outside of the just literal Wells, Fincher canon, then yeah, Otto Friedrich's City of Nets and, and maybe give, uh, give Barton Fink another whirl. 
Uh, Lillian, do you want to come in with anything that you'd recommend off that? Yeah, um, I'm. I think that the BBC over Christmas is going to be showing um, Matthew Bourne's choreography of the Red Shoes Ballet, which includes, which is entirely scored to um, Bernard Herrmann's early British film scores and Citizen Kane, which is th- so. It's this really strange um, fusion of Paul and Pressburger and Citizen Kane with Herrmann's music and everyone's dancing. I, I definitely recommend hearing that score used in a very different setting to to how it's used um in the film so keep an eye out for that that sounds amazing that sounds like a mix of all my favorite things <laughs> and and dance which <laughs> isn't necessarily my favorite things but one way to get me <laughs> oh i like that you're a good dancer but you don't like dancing you don't like seeing other people dance. <laughs> thank, thank you that's that's quite a compliment <laughs> so that was mank on Netflix from 4th of December and in select cinemas to listeners. If you do watch it and want to let us know what you think, you can do so at the usual channels at LW Lies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or at the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. Lillian, David, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Michael Leader. Thank you for listening. You can hear from us again soon. 